0: Well, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. And today we get to launch off a multi year series on the book of Exodus. I, I, I actually don't know how long it's going to be. Uh, Genesis took us about a year and a half to uh, get through. But just so you know, we broke it up with a lot of smaller uh, sermon series. And uh, so fret not, um, this will be fine. So we are launching it today. Very excited. Pastor Craig over at Village Church East, Pastor Alex, at Alliance Bible Church in Bartlett. Um, all three of us are preaching this sermon series together, so for the last couple of months we've been putting our brains together and preparing, and we're very excited um, today in three different churches to open up uh, with the same sermon and shepherd the people of God, so we're so excited for that. Uh, we are actually launching this series with a three-week miniseries um, through chapters one and two called Forgotten. Now, Exodus follows what book of the Bible? Genesis. Awesome. Wonderful, guys. It's so good to pastor such a biblically literate church. (laughs) Oh, goodness. So the word Genesis, it means beginnings or origins. And the book of Genesis tells the origin story of creation, matter, all of the world. It tells the origin story of sin, sin of humanity, where we came from, sin, and why the world is all completely messed up. Uh, It tells the origin story of how evil came into this world, but it also um, tells a really unique and special origin story, and that is of the nation of Israel. In fact, in Genesis chapter 12, the nation of Israel, through Abraham, takes center stage and remains center stage all the way through the entire Old Testament all the way up until the book of Malachi which finishes the Old Testament. And the nation of Israel, its birth and evolution is the central story of the Old Testament. And so that story started in Genesis 12. And so um, here's, a, here's one framework or rubric to help you think about the book of Genesis. Genesis begins with creation, but it closes with a coffin. It begins in this world where everything is as it should be and it's beautiful and it's wonderful and and God is with man and we live together in peace. And then Genesis 3 happens and everything goes crazy. And all of a sudden, you get to the end of the book and you find the death of hundreds of thousands, if not millions and millions of people, many of whom are people God loved. They were God's children. He was in a relationship with them. And what you watch is honestly the patriarchal family, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. This is the most dysfunctional group of people on the planet, right? And what you see is that even God sets his affections on broken, rebellious people. It's a, it's a powerful story, but it ends with death. And one of the things Genesis uh, inevitably did is it answered this question, uh, can anything, can sin or Satan or death stop the plans and promises of God? In Village Church, we're going to give a hearty what to that? No, nothing can stop it at all, in any way, shape, or form. In fact, the best that pharaohs and emperors and presidents have tried to throw at the plans and promises of God, God's like, oh, that's so adorable, you little pawn on my chessboard, right? God is a genius, and he is moving throughout history, and he's using sinful men and women and empires uh, to move history in the direction he wants it to go. And we find is that God's plan still continues to press on, despite the fact that the people people of God are living like morons, and the world is against them despite a global flood that he brings to judge the world. We see this, that nothing's going to stop what God is doing. It just cannot happen. We also have learned that since the fall, the human experience is excruciating. We have learned that it is filled with death and cancer and pain and terrible things over and over again, and we watch as their reality becomes our reality. We look at broken relationships and broken lives and broken everything. And then we get to the book of Exodus, and Exodus means most literally a way out, or you could use the word exit. And what you find in the book of Exodus is that this is the salvation and redemption story of the nation of Israel, completely corrupted by sin. God plucked Abraham out, created a nation through this man, and what you're going to find is that this nation is going to need redemption and salvation, Now, here's what I know about most of you in this room, uh, nay, all of you. All of you have a Genesis story. You have an origin story. God made you. He designed you. But here's what I also know. Uh, I will never stand in front of a group this big and believe that every single person has been saved, has placed personally their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Here's what I know. You all have a Genesis story, but not all of you in this room have an Exodus story. Uh, And what I do want to just share with you is that God's desire for you is not just that you would be born, but that you would be saved and redeemed. Israel had a foe. It was Pharaoh in the nation of Egypt. I want to tell you that your foe is exponentially greater. It is sin and Satan and death, and you need salvation and redemption. You need spiritual exodus from this. And I'm probably going to say this most weeks that we teach through Exodus in one way or another. The book of Exodus screams to all the followers of God, for millennia, you need salvation, and God is the only one who's going to be, enter, be able to enter in and do it. You need to place your faith in Jesus Christ. And what we find is all of the stories, all of the images, all the metaphors uh, that are historically accurate events, but all of this stuff in the book of Exodus ultimately at the end of the day points to Jesus and in Jesus, all of it is perfectly fulfilled. And the story of Exodus is this is written for you because when you look at the Israelites, you're just like them. Their impulses are your impulses. Their desires are your desires. Their sinful tendencies are your sinful tendencies. And you look at these people and they they remind you that you also, not just them, but you, me, we need a savior. We need a personal exodus. And so this is going to be a theme I want to bring up regularly. If you've never trusted in Christ and received exodus from sin, Satan, and death through placing your faith in Jesus, I pray today would be the day that you trust in Jesus. Now, now, if you're a believer in this room, uh, the book of Exodus was written for you specifically. I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. And the Apostle Paul is referencing uh, Exodus, Moses, the wilderness, all this stuff. And here's what he says. Now, these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction And then he says this on whom the end of the ages has come. Like, listen, we're, we're like at the very end. Jesus could come back any, any time. Now, again, you could say we've been waiting for 2000 years, right? But this is how the people of God, their posture has always been like the second coming could happen. Like we're ready. We're ready for it when it happens. And so again, 2000 years ago, Paul's penning this and he just says, listen, this was written for you. Now the end of the ages has come and they're on us. This, this whole thing could consummate any time. Jesus could go back any time. And he says, therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Their story is your story. Their sin, honestly, is our sin. And so God wants us to look at these people and learn because their mistakes, let me just tell you, we don't need to make them. If you have trusted in Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to say this very crassly, their stupidity does not need to be your stupidity. Right? Don't be, this is what Paul would say, don't be the person who has to learn the hard way. That's foolish. Be the person who watches what people who have gone before you have done and learn from their mistakes. I'll set up some context for Exodus. Exodus is written by Moses after millennia of oral tradition. Um, Moses writes the creation account in Genesis. In case you're wondering, Moses wasn't actually there. What happened is the people of God told through oral tradition from one generation to the next about the stories of old. Moses seems to be the first person to kind of bring it all together and write it down and document it for the people of God. And this is one of his great privileges to make sure that every successive generation of the people of God knew the plan of God, the great acts of God, and the redemption of God. Is offered. Uh, The book of Exodus covers about 40 years, but it was written, I mean, just think about this, 3,400 years ago. Like, we have this joy and privilege to study one of the most ancient texts preserved with unbelievable accuracy 3,400 years later. Um, Exodus is going to introduce us to a handful of New Testament themes that are really taking shape in this book. And here are a few of the themes. Number one is the slain lamb, the sacrificial system, all of this cultural context where God is training humanity for this principle that the forgiveness of sins actually requires the shedding of blood. That is a God universal law principle. You don't have to like it or agree with it, but when you stand before God, there will be no forgiveness of sins in the divine court without the shedding of blood. We see all of these instituted here so that humanity can learn these things through types and shadows. We see the tabernacle, which was a big tent, which ultimately would be um, the temple, the very location of the presence of God. You get to meet the priesthood, which is this reminder that sin has separated us from God and we need representation before God. We need pure, holy representation because we cannot approach God unforgiven of our sins. We're reminded of the priesthood. We see the Ten Commandments, which is the standard of morality and ethics for all of Western civilization. It has been the most transformative legal document, if you will, in all of human history. And so we get to see all of this in Exodus, and here's a great way to kind of summarize it. Every pertinent aspect of the gospel is implied in Genesis, but it's clarified in Exodus. So we're going to get to see these things all come full circle. Uh, If you're new to the Bible, Exodus is in what's called the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law. This is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, say it with me, Deuteronomy. Pentateuch, law, Torah all refers to the same grouping uh, of five books. And these five books are primarily telling one story. They're telling the story of the nation of Israel. Uh, this would become their canon, their Bible, their law, the word, the stories and the, the, the laws that they would live by, the Jewish people would. And this nation of Israel um, was plucked out by God to be an incubator for the written word of God, the Bible, but also the living word of God, Jesus. And eventually the savior of the world would come out of the nation of Israel now, open up your Bibles, Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Let's jump in. Uh, if, your English Bible, some of your versions are going to start with the word now, uh, N-O-W. Now, in, in Hebrew, it's, it starts off with a really interesting word. It's va, which simply means and. Like the first word of Exodus is the word and. and and here's what Moses is saying. Don't get me wrong, Genesis is a wonderful literary masterpiece. It stands on its own, but it wasn't the end of Revelation. And so a new book, a new piece of literature is starting, but it is it is connected directly to the first book. And so it's sort of like this is the second book of Harry Potter or the second episode of Star Wars. Like They, they need each other. They build on each other. Um, episode one isn't the totality of the story. This thing marches on. So he starts off, and he, in Hebrew says the word and, but I'll read from the ESV, and you'll see how they do this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to, say it with me, Egypt with Jacob each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher, all the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. I want to highlight one major promise of God that he made to Abraham back in the book of Genesis. Here's what God said to Abraham. He said, your ancestors will live in the promised land. This is my promise. You're going to have a lot of ancestors and they're going to live in the promised land. The promised land at the time was called Canaan. Now the promised land is what? Israel. Same thing. Canaan, Israel, promised land, land flowing with milk and honey. God sits down with Abraham and here's what he says. I'm going to give you this land and your descendants and it's going to be beautiful and wonderful. And we're going to live in harmony. If you do what I say, it's going to be this incredible experience. Now here's the question. Um, Where are they now? Egypt, okay? Who brought all of Jacob's and Abraham's descendants to Egypt? God did. Joseph, through God, I mean, God basically set up um, geographical, geopolitical uh, uh, circumstances that forced uh, all of these people to end up in Egypt lest they would die. God went before them, brought Joseph there, opened up the doors, brought them to the land of Goshen, this place uh, in Egypt where they had this fertile land. They were able to, to thrive and survive and, and have families and raise kids. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to share with you a principle. It's a principle that has become very near and dear to my heart over the last few years. Um, Honestly, it's something I wish when I was 19 years old, somebody would have said it to me just like this. Ready for it? God's pathway to fulfilled promises is rarely a direct line, but a zigzag. I'm irritated just reading that. Like, if you've even ever had a sense of, like, a call on your life... Like, you know what the Lord wants, and you're just like, boom, I'm going to go get it. And it's almost like intuitively we expect when there's a promise or a call or a vision or something clear in the future that we know God wants us to walk toward, that we almost have this sense like, well, the door should just fling open for me, right? But do they fling open for you? No. In fact, you walk through the doors and it's shut and you got to go a different way. And it's like, instead of it being a straight line, and honestly, it feels like a maze and you don't know where you're going inside of it. Like we were at a corn maze this summer. We got stuck in it for like 45 minutes, drove me nuts. But there was some genius who like, look, he knew the whole maze. He knew why he did what he wanted. In fact, they're drawing you through to tell you different stories about corn and this and that. And I'm sitting here, I'm irritated in the middle of it. I'm like, get me out of the maze. That's all I want to do. And that's what life feels like. But rarely will God give you a vision or a destination and just give you a straight line. It's just not how he does things. In fact, I think if God did that, he knew know that we'd become entitled. We'd become prideful. Like He knows that it actually would not produce the kind of benefits that we just, oh, I can handle any kind of prosperity. I'm fine. I make my life as easy as I can. I'll give God all, all glory. No, actually, that's like typically not what actually happens with people. That actually because of sin inside of us, That if we get things too easy, we don't appreciate it. We take it for granted, right? There's actually something really powerful about pain and suffering that keeps us on our face, unmet expectations, not unfulfilled promises, but our own unmet expectations when God makes a promise and then we fill in all the blanks with, but it must be a line. If you loved me, you'd make it a line. If you loved me, there'd be no pain. If you loved me, there'd be no zigzag. And God's like, listen, like before you get to the end, it's a maze, But every twist and turn in that maze is designed perfectly by God for you. To build you, to form you, to shape you, everything. God's pathway to fulfill promises is rarely a direct line, but a zigzag. Look at verse 6. Apparently the people of God have quite a bit of heart formation to go through. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But... The people of Israel were fruitful, and they increased greatly. They multiplied. They grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, I want to highlight another promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. It's a very important promise to understand the book of Exodus. Genesis 15, we're going to look at verse 1 and verse 5. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision, Abram became Abraham. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Like, don't you want to stop there? Right? My reward is going to be great. Now give it to me. (laughs) Verse 5. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, like a challenge. And then he, Yahweh says to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Go back to verse seven. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Moses knows one of the most important jobs that he has is to document the the made and fulfilled promises of God, not just for the wilderness generation of Israelites, but for every successive generation of the people of God for the last 3,400 years who need to be reminded over and over and over and over and over again. It doesn't matter how insignificant the promise is to you, reader, as you just read through Genesis 15. God wants you to know that every promise he makes, he fulfills as he said he would. Definitely not in a straight line. Definitely a zigzag. Feels like a maze. But doggone it, when you get to the end of this thing and you look back, there will not be one promise made that is not perfectly and totally fulfilled by God Himself ever. Ever. And so the people of God for millennia now have been reading these stories and have been rooting our trust in God in these stories saying, because you came through here, you're going to come through there because you never let us down. Then you're not going to let us down here and now. Okay. The people of God waited thousands of years for a Messiah. Genesis three, when the seed is promised all the way to Jesus Christ, That's a really long time to wait. The people of God were antsy. They were enslaved. There were wars and death and battles and fighting with God and false nations and slavery. The list goes on and on. And they're waiting and they're waiting. And thousands of years later, God came through in his promise and gave us Jesus. We're waiting 2,000 more years. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, Lord, speed it up. Like, listen to me. Infinite wisdom. Take some advice from me. Like, I could tell you a thing or two. Lightning. Death. Like... You know what I mean? But don't you feel the same way? Like if he just listened to me, we could get this thing moving along here and that's just not how he works. If you go on to our hub, it's vcob.org forward slash hub. There's a link at the top, and it it has the book Exodus. Um, One of the things in the link is an opportunity for you to do two things. Number one, submit a question, right? There's a bunch of questions I don't want you to ask uh, because I'm hearing them as I speak. We're going to go after those in the Q&A podcast. But there's another section in there uh, where there's an opportunity for you to tell your story about how God has been faithful to you about how God has come through. One of the, I think, things that Village doesn't always do the best is celebrate and remember God's act of faithfulness in our lives. And so in 2020, one of the things we've been talking about as a staff and leadership is, is really trying to figure out how to like, help people tell their story, not in a way that gives Village church credit, ugh, in a way that gives Jesus Christ credit. And so trying to figure out a way to like empower people to, to show here's what God has done in my life, And even, I'm not saying we're going to advertise all these stories, but even just to empower you to be able to start talking about the ways God has moved in your life. Because the people of God, um, yes, we need to read the scriptures and read these stories, but God is still fulfilling his promises. He is still working in and through his people. And we want to give God as much glory as humanly possible. I'll leave you this one line around this promise subject, but the promises of God never go unfilled. Despite, again, despite time, Despite pain, despite frustration, despite affliction, despite oppression, despite suppression, despite cancer, or death, or rebellious children, or a broken church, or broken relationships, or heartaches. It doesn't matter what it is. Like You just take this to the bank. The promises of God never, ever go unfulfilled. Look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Again, God's fulfilling his promise. Apparently the fulfillment of God's promises is inconvenient for the people of the world. Boo-hoo. So it is estimated, some historians have have said, and this is kind of a low-end statement, that of of all the people of Egypt, about one-third of them were immigrants. And so what you find is in this uh, this land, this nation, there is hostility, enmity, tension between the immigrants and those who were born and raised there. Verse 10, it goes on and says, "'Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply.'" And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And here's Pharaoh's concern. Everybody in the world hates us, Right? And so if a nation gets enough strength to come in and fight against us, we've got functionally a third of the population who aren't loyal to us. And if they take their side, we're not going to be able to stand. Now here's the catch 22 with the nation of Israel, wherever they went in the world. Number one, on the one hand, everywhere they go, they bring prosperity in abundance. Uh, this is actually part of the Abrahamic covenant to the nation of Israel um, that God blessed them, and whoever blessed them, they were blessed in return. So what happened to Egypt as Egypt made a space for the Israelites in Goshen? Egypt was blessed. What's going to happen when Egypt turns uh, on the people of God? Well, God's going to keep his promise, and God says, I will bless those who bless you, Abraham, but I will also curse those who curse you. So we're going to watch in the book of Exodus. God is going to keep his promise, and he is going to shame these people who are going to begin oppressing the nation of Israel. But everywhere they go, they bring prosperity. They bring abundance. Um, also, everywhere they go, they reproduce like bunny rabbits. Like they just make more babies and more babies and more babies and more babies. And all of a sudden, there's all these, all these Jews everywhere. And they're, they're wealthy, and they're rich, and they're prosperous, and they're making us rich. And like, oh no, we like them, but they're different. Oh no, they're getting strong. And, and there's this like tension wherever, wherever they go. Add, add to this, this blessing of God on their life. That God just blesses the the Jewish people wherever they go. And so there's actual tension sitting here with with Egypt. And so here's, here's what Pharaoh does. He comes up with the dumbest strategy in the history of the world. Verse 11, here's what he says. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Don't curse the people of God. Pharaoh, what are you doing? Of course, he thought he was bigger and stronger than their God. Now, I want you to imagine you are a Hebrew and you're reading Genesis and Exodus for like the first time. And as you're reading through, you get to this verse, Exodus chapter 1, verse 11, and you see this word afflicted. It's the Hebrew word anah. You think to yourself, I've seen this word before, this is familiar. And your brain goes back to Genesis chapter 15. And I want to show you this because this is so essential. Understanding God's promises to Abraham are essential to understanding the entire book of Exodus. Here's what happens in chapter 15, verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring, remember all the offspring you're going to have, is going to be a ton of them, they will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and they will be servants there. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. God, you told me Canaan, land flowing with milk and honey, to be Israel, promised land. You told me my descendants were going to be there. And now you're telling me they're not just going to be sojourners, but they're going to be servants in a different land. Okay, God, there's the promise. And then there's the reality, and I don't really quite understand how my current reality or their current reality is going to vibe with the promise. And so then the Lord goes on, and he says this. They will be afflicted, anah, same word, for how many years? Four hundred years. And in verse 14, it's almost, like, it's almost like God's like, "Ah, it's going to be fine because of verse 14. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Here's the first thing I thought when I read this. I'm thinking about the afflicted, oppressed Israelite who's 350 years in, was born into slavery and is going to die in slavery. And God's like, oh, don't worry. Your whole life will be oppression, affliction, slavery, depression. It's not going to be great. But your great-grandkids, they'll be fine. Okay, that doesn't help me now. Right? That's, that's where my heart where my heart goes. I, I imagine if you were to sit down with any Israelite under the tyranny and oppression of Pharaoh and their taskmasters and their affliction, I imagine if you were to ask them the following question. Hey, where is God in all of this? Like, imagine, like, you're the guy whipping them. You're the Egyptian, right? You're like, hey, where's your God? Where's this Yahweh you speak of? I think many of them, if they don't outright say, it would be tempted to answer like this. I don't know. I kind of think he just forgot about us. Now, even though in your oral tradition, even though your spiritual leaders tell the story of the 400 years that you're going to be sojourners and slaves and etc., like after 400 years of slavery, do you understand why it'd be pretty easy to feel like God has just kind of forgotten? Okay, if you remembered us, how about in the 400 years? Why don't you just make it a little easier? Throw us a bone. You say you love us. But what happens is that the slavery gets harder and harder and harder and harder. And you're like, listen, I I feel like intuitively if you loved us, you would make our life easier. It's interesting. When we talk about the promises of God, we often put promises in God's mouth that he never said. You notice that? God has never promised the new covenant people that our life would be easy. In fact, I think it's funny. If you just read Jesus, he's like, oh, by the way, they killed me. They're going to kill you. Life's going to be hard. This tribulation, et cetera. But you're going to die one day. Maybe you'll even be killed, but it's all going to work out because you're going to be in heaven forever. Like that's Jesus's MO. And honestly, that's what most of Christendom has experienced numerically, at least over the last 2000 years. And really, that is heightened in a way that is unbelievable the last hundred years, yeah, in America we're like fancy pants and pampered, but like by and large, the global experience of Christianity has been very, very difficult for the people of God. Where are you? verse 16 here 's what it says, and they God 's still talking to Abraham, this is still Genesis 15. And they, your people, shall come back here this is the promised land where Abraham is when this promise is given in the fourth generation, 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. All this begs the question: Why? 430 years. Why the zigzag? Why the back and the forth? Why the here and there? If you know the destination, God, just bring them there. Bring us to the land. Prosperity, milk, everything's wonderful. Like, if you know the end, skip all the pain and suffering and just get to the end. There's, there's two big reasons. Number one, uh, the land was not ready for the Jews. And you're going to see in the, in, the, in the promise that God gave to Abraham, a few attributes of God's character come out. And here's the first one, that God is just. He says the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet Complete, And here's what this means. There's a group of people. They're a small tribe, and they live in the promised land. Now, you've got to get out of your mind, like, millions of people, okay? Get out of your mind tribes, like Native American Indians. Get out of your mind any notion of, like, the American oppressors and the Native victims. Get all that out of your brain. That's not what we're talking about. That context doesn't apply here. Okay, You have this, this tribal group of people, the Amorites. And, I, and I, need you to hear, I need you to hear this, because the amount of times... Um, non-Christians throw this accusation at the Bible, and it seems to stick. Uh, the amount of times I hear this, I'm just like, ah, you don't understand. And people say, well, the God of the Old Testament, he killed women and children and eradicated otherwise good noble people. And I'm like, oh, shush, shush, shush. let's pause for a moment. If you, my friend, walked into the Amorites, women, you'd be raped cut into pieces, bled out, and sacrificed to their gods. Let's be straight. Your children, you want to talk about that? We're not going to. God looks at this group of people and says, apparently there is some sort of like ethical moral standard by which God has determined within the Godhead that I'm not going to obliterate a group of people until they meet like this standard. Apparently in Genesis like six, seven, right? With the flood, all of humanity, except Noah met that standard. Okay. But apparently the Amorites are not there. And God is like, listen, I'm not just going to kick anybody out of the land. The Amorites were there first. Don't get me wrong. They're terrible, evil, wicked people. We're going to give them 400 years. Why? Because I'm just. Because I am a just God, and no one in history, when they see the deeds that I have done, nobody, when they see it from my perspective, will ever be able to call me unjust. But number two, he's incredibly merciful. This is 400 years of an opportunity to repent. 400 years for them to get their brains straight. Like, that's generation after generation after generation, and they didn't. They got more and more progressively wicked, and so here's what happened. At the right time, God sent the Israelites in, and there were certain aspects of these tribes where God said, you have to eradicate all of them because God knows the future, and he knows that if one ounce of them is left, they are a fundamental threat to humanity. They are not like any nation-state that we have in this world today. We just can't, we can't put categories like that in place. Number two, why 430 years? The Jews were not ready for the land. Moses is telling these stories to the wandering Israelites. He's writing all this down and he wants everybody to know this. And I'll put this on the screen. And, and this is hard. I'm going to be honest. It's not, this isn't like yay, but we need to hear it. Suffering accomplishes a transformation that prosperity and comfort never could. It's just a fact. Like, nobody ever received a $300 million lottery ticket and was better for it. Statistically, it corrupts everybody. There's something about prosperity that if your heart is not prepared for it, it corrupts you. And we see this. We see this over and over and over. Rare, rare, rare the person who can be given wealth on a dime like that and not be corrupted by it. In fact, if God is going to be good and gracious and give you wealth, there's going to require lots of preparation time for that experience, lest you be crushed. But there's nothing like pain and suffering to shape you. Now, I'm not saying God causes the pain or suffering. I'm not even going to begin to pretend for a moment to understand whether or not God ordains it, allows it, permits it. Uh, I do know that if we knew what he knew and we had all of his data points, like if we had all the information that he had and that we were to judge him, we would call him good, holy, right, and justice ev- just every single time. But I do know this. When you, believer, find yourself in this suffering... We need to think differently. In fact, let me say it this way. In suffering, God has not forgotten you, which is the temptation, but God is forming you. I mean, your temptation and pain is to say, where are you? If you loved me, you'd make it better, which is not what he says. And actually what God is doing, and forget about why you're there, okay? What God is doing is forming you, shaping you. There will be no greater season of transformation than pain or suffering. Don't waste it. Lean into it. You're not going to stop it. God never promised to make it go away. Even if it lasts your whole life, lean into it because the Lord wants to form you into the image of Jesus in your worst moments. And the busier we are shaking our fist at him, the less formation actually begins to happen. Don't get me wrong. I'm standing with men and women and students and children, and we all together have significant moments and seasons of our lives when we want to say to God, for the love of God, stop it now. And then, there, and then often God's response is, not yet. We're in the zigzag. It's excruciating. It's exhausting. And I'm like, Lord, please, how about now? As long as he permits it to happen, formation is happening, happen, will happen in you if you lean into it. Verse 11, they built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more, uh, this gets more and more humorous. The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Wouldn't you like think Pharaoh would like get in his brain? Stop oppressing them. It's not going well for you. But his heart has been hardened. His heart is hard as a rock. He can't think logically or play the long game. It's just hard and it's angry and it's retributive. And the Egyptians, I love this, they were in dread of the people of Israel. Why would God even allow this? That's what I'm thinking the whole time. And, and again, because in our darkest moments, God does the greatest amount of transformation. Again, I'm not, I'm not trying to answer the question of why. I'm not even saying God ordained it. I do know, which aggravates me, he could have stopped it and he didn't. I prefer to say things as they are. I don't prefer to, like, play word games and work around stuff. Like, it is what it is. My God is not a weak God. My God is a strong God. My God could have stopped it, and he didn't. My God could have intervened, but he didn't. And I do know that if I had all the data points, if I had all the information that he had, I would actually make the same exact decision every time that he made because I would do what he did if I knew what he did. That's what I would do. My problem is that I'm finite, I'm small, and I'm very, 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 very selfish. I want my pain and misery gone. Sometimes I don't even care the cost on other people. I just want it, I want it gone now. It's interesting, too, because um, you see this principle all throughout history that as the people of God are oppressed, do they grow or shrink? They grow. Like, China. 1949, uh, cultural revolution, the Chinese government came in and squished out Christendom uh, and honestly much of what was known spiritually in China was shut off to all of the West. Persecution began to rain down and it took decades for the West and for Christians to get access to be able to get a picture of what was happening in China over these decades as the government uh, oppressed the people and killed them and put them in jail and tried to stomp out and stamp out Christianity. And so so decades later, um, followers of Christ were given access and they were nervous. The people of God were nervous because we expected that the church in China was going to be small. Guess what it was? Enormous. Catch this. These are like, this is a median number, and the numbers have gone up. They're sort of like exponential numbers. Between 1949 and today, on average, if you take all the people who've come to Christ in China in this season, 887,000 people per year personally come to faith in Jesus Christ in China, while the government presses them down. Only God. Isn't that crazy? Oh, you're going to try to shut down my people? That's adorable and hilarious. Boom, they grow exponentially. And those numbers have been higher in the last 20 years. It started off slow and just ramped up. And the people of God, you can't stop them. Okay, oppress them all you want. They will explode like wildfire, and it will drive you even more nuts. So verse 13, Exodus 1, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves, And here's what God wants to tell millennia of followers of God. I got this. Many of you feel just like they did in this moment. But it doesn't end with Exodus 1, does it? And the book of Exodus is going to slowly tell the intervention, salvation, redemption story of God in these people's lives. But if you were to like snapshot any of the, of the Jewish people in this moment, they would feel like they're forgotten. But are they forgotten? No. The promise of God hangs over their life. And the promise in this time was 400 years are up, I will intervene, I will bring my people out, and they will leave with great possession. Now, is it going to happen in the straight line that everybody thinks is going to happen? Nope, it's a zigzag. It's a 400-year zigzag and then another zigzag in the wilderness, right? That's another hilarious story of zigzagging. It's an 11-day journey and it takes them 40 years. What? Right? But the promise of God when it's over your life, it doesn't matter what it feels like. It doesn't matter what you see. It doesn't matter what the experience is. When the promise of God is over your life, even if you die before you see the fulfillment of it, it is the most sure thing. You will know that it will be fulfilled for sure because not one promise of God will ever fail. I'm going to share with you a couple of so whats. Number one, you may not live to see the promises, but they're coming. You may die, but they're coming. In Revelation, there's a group of people who are apparently aware enough of what's happening on the earth, and they say to Jesus, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood? Here's what they're asking How long, O Lord, until you make right all the things that you promised us? You promised that you'd make this right. And so they are in heaven. These are the martyrs. These are the people who have been killed for their faith in Jesus. And they are looking at Jesus and saying, okay, you ascended 60 years ago. <laughs> How long? And, and then Jesus' response, it's not comforting, by the way. His response is, until the number of which I have appointed to be killed are killed. What? What does that tell you about the historical trajectory of the church as long as Jesus waits to come back? that the forces of this world will go against the church. There are going to be pockets and season of prosperity for the church, but they don't last that long. And inevitably they crumble in and of themselves. You may not live to see the promises, but they're coming. And there's a bunch of people in heaven who are asking Jesus the same question. How long, O Lord, until you make this right. And when this whole thing is said and done, we're going to look back and we will see every single promise that God made fulfilled. And I'm going to say this again when you see all the data points and information and perspectives that God has, and you look at it from the divine, omniscient, genius, righteous lens, you're going to step back and here's what every one of us in this room are going to say to Him You're smarter than I am. My ideas weren't great, yours were wonderful. I'm going to do it, hey, by the way, your way next time, because you're a genius. But do we feel that way now? (laughs) No. Very few people are like, if I could do this all over again, I would make me suffer as much as I am today. (laughs) That's not the way it works. That's why we live by faith, not by our feelings. Number two, the pathway to promise is almost always impossibly difficult. But I want to tell you this. It's worth it. Most people can't stick it out. Most people can't get through the suffering and be formed. So the suffering repeats itself until the formation happens lean into whatever it is, and just have confidence. It's going to be hard. You know it's going to be hard, but it's worth it. Number three, not one of God's children is ever forgotten, despite how it feels. So feeling, feeling forgotten, I feel forgotten often. It's a normal experience. It doesn't mean you're the worst person in all of human history. It is very normal. In fact, there's an entire psalm written about feeling forgotten, Psalm 44, I want to just read this to you. And you know how most psalms, like, they share their candid feelings, and then they, they end with like, oh, but God, you're amazing, and all this stuff. That's not this psalm. This is a psalm about feeling forgotten, and it ends with a plea and no intervention. Here's what the psalmist says. All this has come upon us, that we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant— Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We haven't done anything. We're literally doing everything you told us to do and we're being killed. And then listen listen in Psalm 44, verse 23. Here's the plea that the psalmist makes to God in this desperate moment of where are you? Awake, exclamation point. Why are you sleeping, O oh Lord? Rouse yourself, exclamation point. Do not reject us forever, exclamation point. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Psalm over. Here's what I know. If you could talk to the sons of Korah who penned this, they would say, God came through. In the middle of writing it, he didn't come through. Like I'm guessing when they penned this, it wasn't just like, all oh, like glamour and glitz and wonderful and joy, and he did everything he said he would do. Isaiah 49, uh, verse 15, I love this line. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she, sh- that, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. But even these may forget, yet... I will not forget you. It doesn't matter what you feel. If the promise of God is over you, you are not forgotten. The most oft-repeated promise of God in the Bible, it's very simple and it's very beautiful, I am with you always. I will never leave you or forsake you. We got to get out of our brain this idea that the promise is that I will make you happy, healthy, wealthy, and have your life be easy. And if you're a good person, your life will be easy. And if you're a bad person, your life will be bad. Right? That's not the promise. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's probably going to be hard. Sin is everywhere. It affects everybody. You're going to hurt them. They're going to hurt you. You're all going to die. Pain's going to be here. But I am with you. And I'm up to something. I'm forming you. I'm shaping you. I will not forget you. Which brings us to communion, the greatest fulfillment of the promise of God yet to date in all of history. The people of God waited for millennia, 400 years of silence before Jesus was even born. And the people are like, oh my goodness, have you forgotten us? Do you love us? Are you here? And God's resounding answer is that he becomes flesh. He breaks into human history and does one of the most unbelievable things we have ever could have possibly imagined. God himself becomes our priest. He becomes our slain lamb. He becomes our sacrifice in our place. He becomes the temple, the very presence of God for his people. He bears on his body and soul and emotions all the righteous wrath of God for everyone's sins on himself. Like, who does that? No Egyptian God does that, but our God does. And then he raises from the dead. as this awesome proclamation that, no, the story is true. And just as I came the first time, I'm going to come a second time. Count on it. Now, should we expect the second coming to be quick after the ascension of Jesus Christ based on his time frame throughout history? No. In fact, you'd expect it to be incredibly long. Why? Because every promise he made seemed to be fulfilled over an incredibly long period of time. And so we celebrate communion. We remember what he did. We look forward to the future. We're not shaken because it's taken 2,000 years. We already know God's more than willing to take longer than that. We're the people, even if we die before we see him come back, we're the people who root ourselves in this belief that even though we don't like the human experience, God is good and faithful and with us and he will make this right. And then when it's all said and done, we will give him glory and we will agree with him and we will call him good, we will call him righteous. So if you've never been with us for communion, if you uh, have trusted in Jesus, it does not matter where you go to church, I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. If you've never trusted in Christ, um, our ask is that you let the elements pass because the partaking of communion is a declaration that you believe in the promises of God. You've placed your faith in Jesus. It is a declaration that you have not just had a Genesis, but you've had an Exodus in your life. We're going to have a time of silence. It's an opportunity for you to pray, to thank God, to worship him, confess. that's um, done, I'm going to um, pray, with, pray with you. We're going to worship together as the elements are handed out. Would you just hold on to the elements until the end of the song? After the song is over, we're going to partake together as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Let's have a time of silence with the Lord.